ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you're new with us, my name's Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors, and just want to let you know we're really glad uh, that you're here and that you gathered with us this morning. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have made it to uh, what is really everybody's favorite passage in 1 Corinthians, the passage about head coverings. Uh, when we first announced that we were going to preach through 1 Corinthians, I can't tell you how many of you came up to me and talked about how much you love this passage, how you read it every day in your devotions, and how you really just couldn't wait to hear a sermon preach uh, about head coverings. Uh, no, I, I'm just kidding. This is really one of the more difficult and confusing passages, probably in all of Scripture. Uh, but I am excited to preach on it because I do think it affords us the opportunity not only to hear a word from God to us, God has something to say to us through this passage. Uh, but I think it also helps us to think about how we should just read the Bible uh, in general. And so we're going to look at this together. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll start in verse 2. Uh, we're going to read down through verse 16. Let's, uh, let's get weird. Amen? Starting in verse 2, the very word of God to us today. Uh, it speaks to us like this. It says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything. And maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should, not, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I got no clue what Paul's talking about uh, when he says the angels, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What could go wrong here, right? Uh, please pray for me. Uh, as you can tell, uh, this is an incredibly difficult and uh, confusing passage. Once again, it, it may be the most confusing passage uh, in the entire Bible, because there, there's just so much here that we really don't know and just kind of have to guess on. And so there are going to be so many times this morning where I'm just going to have to kind of say, like, you know, we, we think it seems like our best guess is, but, but at the end of the day, uh, we just don't know. Now, with that said, I, I do think kind of the main things that Paul is trying to get across are a little bit clearer than some of the details, and so we're going to try to focus our attention on those. And, and again, I want to let you know that a, a difficult passage like this really affords us the opportunity to kind of step back and just ask the question, how should we be reading the Bible? What, what sort of principles should we be bringing to the Bible when we read it, if we're going to read it well? 
Well, one of the principles that has served the church well throughout her history is that Scripture is best interpreted by Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. You see, because the Bible is one book telling one story written ultimately by one author, God, uh, it's not going to contradict itself. And because every passage in the Bible has the same divine author, we can use clearer passages to help us interpret uh, more difficult and confusing ones. Not, not every passage in the Bible is equally clear. And so, for example, like, it wouldn't be a good idea for us to build out a whole theology, like what we believe about how men and women should relate to one another just based off this passage alone because uh, it's not as clear as other passages that teach on these things. And so what we do is we bring those clearer truths from those other passages into this one and help us interpret uh, what's a little bit more muddy here. Another principle is that we interpret a text in its context, what, ha- what comes before it and what comes after it. And so this is a text that comes in the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's not just kind of sitting out on its own on an island. And uh, for the past few chapters, Paul has been talking about food offered to idols and how we as uh, followers of Jesus are meant to love our brothers and sisters and lay down our freedoms and rights to serve them and care for them and privilege them above ourselves Uh, And that's the same focus here. Paul's going to move here in chapter 11 to talk about for the next few chapters uh, what we should do when we gather together as a church for worship. Uh, But this focus is still going to be the same, uh, caring for others, privileging others above yourself. And again, that's the focus here in this passage. Uh, I think Paul's main kind of thrust in this passage, what he's trying to get across is the issue of honor, how we honor God and ourselves and uh, others when we come together uh, as a church and gather together for worship. And so again, some of the details are a little bit unclear, uh, but it does seem to be that this is what Paul is putting forward. And so three things that I think Paul is calling us to honor here in this passage, uh, and this is how we'll walk through it. I think Paul is calling us to honor our spouses, uh, to honor the participation of women in the church gathering, and then to honor God's design for gender. And he doesn't really work through these in a real kind of linear, just down the line way. He goes kind of back and forth between them. And so uh, we're going to do the same. But let's think first about what it means to honor our spouses. And so Paul begins here in verse 2, and he says that he, he commends them for holding fast to the traditions that he delivered to them when he came to them as a church. And now we, we know from earlier parts of the letter that the Corinthian church is jacked up uh, and so we don't know if Paul is just being nice here or not, but, but something important that I do want to acknowledge that I think Paul is hitting on here is that tradition is not a bad thing. Like, we don't want to just try to kind of make up everything as we go as a church. We, we want to be apostolic. That means following the teaching of the apostles, the New Testament, as best we can as we try to structure the life of our church. And one of these traditions that Paul's trying to hand down again and remind them of, he tells us in verse 3, he wants us to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there are a couple sticky things here in verse 3. One, what does head mean? Uh, Two, what does it mean that, that the head of Christ is God? And then three, the Greek word for woman and for wives, it's the same Greek word. And so you don't know what, Paul, what someone's talking about. If they're talking about women in general or wives in particular, just based on the word that they used, you have to determine it from the context. And in some other places, like Ephesians 5, it's really clear that Paul is talking specifically about husbands and wives. But 
Here in 1 Corinthians 11, it's not always as clear whether Paul's talking about men and women in general or husbands and wives in particular. In fact, I think he kind of slides back and forth uh, between these. And, and so let's talk about these. First, what, what does head mean? Well, when we hear the word head, I think we automatically kind of jump to, well, that's the person who's in charge. That's the person who has authority. And, and I think there's definitely some of that in the definition, but I also think there's a little bit more. Uh, because the cultures that the Bible was written into were, were honor-shame cultures, not guilt-based cultures. Now, I think we're actually growing to be able to understand that a little bit more here in the West, because while we used to be a guilt-based culture, we are rapidly moving to an honor-shame culture. Because now it's not just, hey, you did something bad and you need to repent for that. It's that you are bad and you need to be canceled for that. Like, that's honor-shame. And in an honor-shame culture, the head is the kind of prominent representative of the organization or of the family, the one who's, uh, whose reputation could be either honored or shamed by the actions of those who uh, he or she represents, who they represent as the head. So second, what does it mean that the head of Christ is God? Well, in the early centuries of the church, uh, a lot of heretics uh, misinterpreted this verse to say that Jesus is somehow subordinated to God, that he's lesser than God the Father is, that he's kind of less God than God the Father is. But that's not what this verse is saying at all. Uh, when it says that the head of God is the head of Christ, it's talking about Jesus according to his human nature. I mean, even think about the word that he uses here, Christ, Messiah, the office he takes up as a human being to come and save us. And so God is the head of Christ when we're talking about Jesus according to his human nature, not his divine nature. Uh, this is a responsibility that Jesus took up as a man when he came to earth as part of God's plan to save us. On earth, Jesus' human actions could either bring honor or shame to God as his head. And third, is Paul talking about men and women in general or wives and husbands in particular here? Well, again, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, there's nowhere else in the Bible that says that all men are the head of all women or that all women are to submit themselves to all men. Uh, but there is another place in one of Paul's letters where Paul explicitly says uh, that the husband is the head of his wife and, and the wife is to submit herself to her husband. And so it seems best to take that in the same way here. Uh, Paul is not saying that all men are the head of all women. He's saying a husband is the head of his wife, and a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. And, and so because that's the case, Paul wants to make sure that when the church gathers together for worship, the men uh, leave their heads uncovered uh, so that they don't dishonor their head, Christ, and that the women, uh, the wives, cover their heads so that they don't dishonor their head, uh, their husband. Now, we have no clue what the specific head covering that Paul wanted was, or even really kind of why Paul wanted it, uh, but it does seem to come back to this kind of fundamental issue of honoring your spouse and honoring the commitment you made to your spouse. Because it seems like in the Corinthians culture that having your head uncovered as a woman communicated availability, that you were available as a, a, a prospect for men to pursue, which is not something that you want to communicate as a wife. Right? And so Paul is saying, when you gather together, when you pray or prophesy as a wife, you need to have uh, your head covered uh, to show um, respect to your husband. Now, 
We've seen in the letter to 1 Corinthians that uh, the Corinthians think they're kind of pretty free in Christ to do what, really whatever they want sexually. You remember chapter 5, there's a man who was sleeping with his stepmom. In chapter 6, Paul had to tell him to stop sleeping with prostitutes. And so, man, it's very plausible that, that the Corinthians think that they're kind of just free in Christ to throw off all sort of traditional norms and anything that would communicate your commitment to your husband or to your wife. And Paul's saying that that's wrong, that you shouldn't do that. And, you know, maybe we hear that and we think, well, that's kind of backwards, that's kind of stupid, that's kind of patriarchalist, but, but think about it like this. If a husband or a wife were to go into a bar tonight, and right before they went into the bar, they were to take off their wedding ring and put it into their pocket, uh, would you just say, well, what's the big deal in that? I mean, they're still married. It's just a symbol. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's just a ring. No, you wouldn't say that, right? Because, yeah, in a sense, you'd be right. It is just a ring, and taking off your wedding ring does not mean that you're no longer married, but in a uh, situation like that, you're truly, clearly trying to communicate, I'm available. I want to be pursued. I want to see what my options are out here. And, and so Paul is calling men and women, husbands and wives specifically, to not do this, to honor the commitment and the covenant that they made with their spouses uh, to do this. This is why Paul says, is if a wife, if you're going to leave your head uncovered, you might as well go all the way and shave your head, which is what we think prostitutes did during the time. And so Paul is saying that you need to, as a wife, show commitment and honor to the commitment and covenant you made to your husband, that your husband is your head. And so again, Paul seems to be kind of picking up on the Bible's broader teaching that husbands are the head of their wives and wives are to submit themselves uh, to their husbands. Uh, and this is the main point that, again, comes back, honoring your spouse. And so uh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what headship and submission do and don't mean. Uh, husbands, being the head of your wife means that you are, are, are called by God to be the spiritual leader in your home and that Man, even in a sense, I think based on how the word is defined, that you would have some authority over your wife. But look, I get really, really antsy uh, anytime this comes up because what we hear when we hear the words leadership and authority is, okay, that means I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one that gets to call the shots. I'm the one that gets to direct and make decisions for the family. I'm the one that has the power. And she's just called to kind of fall in line and obey that and do whatever I say. And that's the exact opposite of what the Bible talks about when it talks about authority and leadership. Jesus says that the rulers of the world, those who are leaders in this world, lord it over those in their charge, and they try to get everybody to serve them. But in his kingdom, if you want to be first of all, you've got to be last of all and servant of all. That in his kingdom, leadership is not about getting people to serve you. It's about serving them. I mean, he sets the example for us. He is God, very God of very God, yet he takes on human flesh, becomes a man, and when he comes to earth, he explicitly tells us in Mark 10 that he did not come to be served by us, but to serve us and to give up his life as a ransom for many, and that if we're going to follow him as his disciples, we've got to walk the same path. In fact, in Ephesians 5, the passage that explicitly says that as a husband, you are the head of your wife, do you know what it explicitly tells you to do? It does not tell you to lead your wife. It tells you to love your wife as Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. 
And so if you want to lead your wife, you do it by loving her and serving her and sacrificing for her and giving of yourself so that she might flourish, not by commanding her. Like being the head and the spiritual leader does not mean that when you and your wife can't agree on the decision that you get the tie-breaking vote. Like if that's how you want to do it in your family, that's fine. But that's an interpretation of what headship and submission means. That is not what the text says. Instead, being the spiritual leader means that you are called to take the lead in being a picture of Christ to your wife and to your children in the way that you love them and you serve them and you give of yourself and you sacrifice so that they might flourish and they might be built up in Jesus. That's the only authority you have as a husband, the authority to, lead, to love and to give and to serve. My husbands, I, I want you to feel this and be challenged by this. You are called to make the greater sacrifice in your marriage, and your wife's submission to you should not feel to her like it's a greater sacrifice that she's making than you are. Look, if you are not doing this, if you're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church and giving of yourself so that she might flourish, you're not fulfilling the role that God has called you to and the responsibility that God has given you, no matter how many decisions you might make in your family. And listen, if you think that being the head of your wife means that you have the power to make all the decisions and just command her and she has to do what you say, the Bible has a word for you, and it's not leader, it's fool. You're being a fool. And, and so that, that's headship. Uh, let, let's move to submission. We'll start first by talking about what submission is not. Uh, submission is not obedience. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, right after Paul gets done telling wives in Ephesians 5 that they're to submit themselves to their husbands, he, he moves on in chapter 6 and he says that, that servants are to obey their masters, so think employees to bosses, and then children are to obey their parents. And the word he uses for obedience in chapter 6 is a different word than he uses for submission in chapter 5. And so whatever submission means, it cannot mean obedience like an employee is supposed to give to a boss or a child is supposed to give to a parent. And I hate that I have to say this, but I do have to say this. Uh, the husband and wife relationship should look fundamentally different uh, than the child and parent relationship because submission is not obedience. And so if it's not obedience, what is it? Well, we think submission is fundamentally characterized by respect. Again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. In Ephesians 5, at the, at the top of the passage, Paul says first that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives. And he goes on and talks about how marriage is given to picture the gospel, the love between Christ and the church. And when he swings back at the end of the passage, he says, only let husbands love their wives and wives respect their husbands. I think by doing that, he's making respect and submission synonyms, saying that they mean the same thing. And so to submit to your husband means that you are to respect and honor your husband. Now, a few more caveats I want to put in place. If your husband is currently abusing you in any form, physical, sexual, spiritual, emotional, verbal, and it, it is not respecting to him to just stay to try to submit to that and to continue to give him opportunity to do that for you. Like, you don't have to stay in order to be submissive to him. In fact, you need to do the opposite, and you need to get out from under that. Look, if the abuse is physical or sexual, 
you need to call the police or let us help you notify the police because it's a crime. We want to help you get to a safe place in that. When, when abuse comes into the picture, your husband has so fundamentally distorted and damaged and perverted the picture of what marriage is supposed to be and that, that the primary concern becomes getting you to safety. And, and so that's what we need to do in a situation like that when abuse is involved. And we want to be able to do that if that's what you're walking through right now. But, but even when abuse is not involved, submission also does not mean just enabling your husband or being a doormat to him. You know, if you've got a friend that's just destroying her life through all these bad choices you, she's making and you never say anything to her because you don't want to rock the boat and you don't want to make her upset with you, you're not really loving and respecting her, are you? And part of respect is wanting what's best for a person, wanting to uh, see them flourish and, and not destroy themselves and take others down with them. And, and so part of respect would mean speaking up in a situation like that. And the same thing is true when it comes to your spouse. Like as a wife, you're not called to enable your husband. You're not called to be a doormat to your husband. You're just called to respect and honor your husband. Now, what can get lost in the good and right and necessary work of talking about what submission is not is that we never actually get around to talking about what submission is. And because Paul seems to highlight and focus a little bit on how wives are supposed to honor and respect their husbands here, I, I don't want us to miss this. Like, as a wife, you are called to respect your husband. And people should see something different in you because of Jesus. People should be able to see the way that you're committed to him and that you honor and respect him. Like, don't demean your husband. Don't gossip about your husband or slander your husband to other women. Like, honor and respect him. Like, that doesn't mean that you've got to act like everything's perfect. It doesn't mean that you can't ever share uh, prayer requests and, and talk about fights and struggles that you're having in your marriage. Look, you can and you should. You should not try to walk through that alone, and you don't have to. But what I'm saying is that there's a monumental difference between that, between asking for prayer and having people walk alongside you through the normal struggles and fights of marriage and demeaning and disrespecting your husband. And to demean and disrespect your husband like that, like it's sin. Just like a, a husband's failure to love you like Jesus loved his church, it's sin on his part to demean and disrespect your husband would be sin on your part. And so maybe an example like if other people are going to think that your husband is an idiot, uh, let it be because he's shown himself to be an idiot and not because you've constantly let them know about how dumb and incompetent and foolish he is. Like honestly, let people be blown away. Like, oh my gosh, he really is kind of an idiot. Is she just completely oblivious to this? Because you're not constantly talking smack about him. And, and look, if your husband really is a fool, you letting him know how often and how much of a fool he is is probably not going to help him stop being a fool. And, and so even when it's difficult, find ways to honor and respect him, to show your commitment to him. And you're, you're called to do this because this is a reflection of the gospel, the way that Jesus is committed to us. And so when you honor your spouse, when you respect your husband and show your commitment to him, you're, you're bearing witness to the gospel when you do this. So this is the first thing that Paul shows us in this passage, that we're called to honor our spouses. Next, he tells us that we're to honor the participation of women in our gatherings. And so look back again at the text with me in verse 5. 
He says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. And so notice, the, the reason why men are to have their heads uncovered and wives are to have their heads covered is primarily in the context of when they pray and prophesy, when they're leading the church in its gathered worship. And again, I think this is one of those times when Paul kind of slides back to talking about men and women in general because it wouldn't make sense to say, well, married women can pray and prophesy when the church gathers together, but single women can't. And so it seems like he's talking about all women here. And what I want you to notice is that women are praying and prophesying when the church gathers together for worship. They're helping lead the church in her worship. And Paul just kind of takes it as a given that this is happening. He doesn't say, hey, if women are praying and prophesying, make sure they have their heads covered. He just assumes that it's taking place, which means that if we are going to hear this passage as a word from God to us and rightly respond to it, then we also have to honor and pursue the participation of women in our church gatherings when the church gathers together for worship. Now, again, we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture and interpret it in its context to help us understand what this means. And in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says that women should be silent in the church. Now, he can't mean that women should never talk in the church because if he does, he's contradicting what he just said here in chapter 11 because here in chapter 11, women are praying and prophesying when the church gathers together for worship. And so what does he mean? Well, it seems like he's picking up again on some of his teachings that he lays out more clearly in other, uh, other of his letters, specifically a letter like 1 Timothy, which is that the, the office of elder, the office of pastor, is called to be filled by qualified men and that there are some responsibilities when the church gathers together that falls on the shoulders of elders. And one of those responsibilities that falls on the shoulder of elders uh, is the authoritative teaching of God's Word is preaching. And so elders have the responsibility to preach God's word to the church when the church gathers together for worship. And, and what we'll see as we get into these next few chapters uh, is that, that that's a different thing from prophesying, that preaching and prophesying are not uh, the same thing. And so we, we don't think that the Bible's teaching on kind of gender roles in the church is, well, there's some things that men can do that women can't do. We think it's there are some responsibilities that elders are called to have that fall on the shoulders of elders. Because look, as elders, as your pastors, we are called to lead you uh, to the best of our ability, but the only real authority we have to do that is with the Word of God. And so, for example, if I were to come up to you after this and say, hey, I need you to go to the store for me later today and get this thing for me, and, and you say, why? And I say, well, because I'm one of your pastors and I told you to, like, that's not a good enough answer. I don't have sort of unlimited authority in your life to just command you to do what you do. You don't have to listen to me in that. The only authority we have as pastors is to point you to the Word of God and to say, hey, here's what God says. Let's walk in that. Let's obey that. Let's line up our lives under that. And so God has given us His Word to help us lead you as a church. And again, preaching is one of those ways that God gives us to do that. But, but look beyond that, we really don't think the Bible lays out a bunch of other restrictions. The office of elder, pastor, is reserved for qualified men, 
uh, the authoritative preaching of God's word to the church when it gathers is the responsibility of elders, and elders are to take the lead in uh, guarding the church against false teaching and false doctrine. But beyond that, we need men and women leading and teaching in every area of our church's life, or we will be the poorer as a church if we uh, don't have it. Look, and I'll just tell you, now, one of our temptations as a church that does not ordain women to the office of pastor is that we're just constantly going to be tempted to turn everything into a boys' club where men make all the decisions and men do all the teaching and men do all the leading, and we have to actively fight against that. Look, we want to give our elders, especially our lay elders who don't share as much of the preaching load, opportunities to pastor you and lead you and pray for you on Sunday mornings, but we want to be elder-led, not elder-dominated. Because look, here at this church in Corinth that has elders, it's not just elders who are doing everything. Women are helping lead the church when the church gathers together for worship. And so Jen Wilkins, she says it like this. She says, the challenge for us in the church, especially those of us who are in church leadership, is whether we're creating a church culture that permits women to serve rather than pursues women to serve. We want to be a church culture that pursues women to serve, and where we fail to do that, and I want to tell you I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the ways that we failed to do that, and I also want to ask you to hold us accountable in this area. We're trying to grow as elders. Look, look a pastor does not have to be the only one that can read Scripture on a Sunday morning. Uh, it doesn't have to be a pastor who prays on Sunday morning. It doesn't have to be a pastor who leads us in confessing a creed or a catechism question together uh, on a Sunday morning. And so if you see a few Sundays in a row go by where women are not leading uh, in, in a way from the front, man, I'm asking you to ask us about that and hold us accountable to that. Because we need men and women uh, serving together for the church to be all that God has called us to be. Because what Paul goes on to highlight in this passage is our interdependence on one another, how we need each other, and we can't do without the other. I think this is what Paul is talking about when he says uh, that man was not created from woman, but woman from man, and man was not created for woman, but woman for man, but now every man afterwards is born from a woman, so we're interdependent on each other. Like, yes, there are distinctions between male and female, and, and Paul's going to highlight those, and we're going to talk about those later on in the passage, but, but here he's trying to highlight our interdependence on one another. Because, you know, we hear a phrase in verse 9 like, well, women were created for men, and then we go and read in Genesis 2 where it says that God created the woman to be the man's helper, and we just kind of automatically think, okay, that means women were really created to be domestic servants. And so men go out and conquer the world, and women stay behind, and they, uh, he, they cook for him, they clean for him, they do his laundry, and they raise his kids. And that's the exact opposite of what Genesis and 1 Corinthians are saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. Look, woman was created for man because it wasn't good for man to be alone. Woman was created as man's helper because the man could not fulfill God's calling and commission on his life by himself. In fact, the word for helper in Genesis 2, when it's used in the rest of the Old Testament, it is always used of God coming to help his people or another nation's military coming to help another nation. It's not a term of weakness. It's a term of partnership. God has created us as men and women to fulfill his calling on our lives together, and we can't do that alone. 
We can't do that as just men. We can't do that as just women. We are interdependent on one another. And so we've got to honor that interdependence on one another when we gather together as a church to worship. Another way we've got to honor that is by honoring God's design for gender. Look back at the text with me in verse 13. It says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a man has long hair, it, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. covering. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So wives are called to wear head coverings, not just because it shows their commitment to their spouse, but also because it honors God's design of them as a woman and not a man. And men are to leave their heads uncovered and not to have long hair because it honors God's design of them as a man and not uh, a woman. Here, I think Paul, again, kind of slides back into talking about men and women in general, and he's trying to highlight that uh, part of honoring God in our worship means we honor the distinctions that God made uh, for our genders, that we honor God's design for our genders when we gather together uh, for worship. I think this is why Paul says uh, that men should leave their heads uncovered because they're the image and glory of God, while women should cover their heads because they're the glory of man. Now, when Paul says that women are the glory of man, I do not think he's trying to say that women are not made in the image of God. Genesis 1 clearly says that women and men both are made in the image of God, and Paul knows that. He's read his Bible. Uh, he's not stupid. I think instead Paul's trying to highlight a point about our distinctiveness here. Because uh, a couple of people I've been reading have pointed out that when you uh, interpret Genesis in light of the story of the whole Bible, it seems to be establishing this sort of typology where the man uh, represents, he symbolizes, he pictures Christ, and the woman uh, represents and, and pictures and symbolizes the church, the bride of Christ, where all of us who have been redeemed by Jesus, men and women, are headed. If you're redeemed by Jesus and you're a man, I, I, maybe I hate to tell you this, but you're, you're part of the bride of Christ uh, right now, and, and you will be in full when he returns. And so for Paul to call woman the glory of man, I think is to highlight this, that women uh, in their bodies, in their creation as a woman, you represent and you picture our goal as humanity, where we're headed, what God is saving us for to be the bride of Christ. Uh, in fact, uh, one person I was reading used the illustration of apples and an apple tree. Uh, the apple is the glory of an apple tree, but it doesn't make one more necessary than the other, but an apple's kind of the goal of what the apple tree is meant to do and how it's meant to serve, right? It's kind of where it's supposed to be headed. I think the same thing is going on here with men and women. Women picture and represent the, the glory of humanity, what we're called to be, the bride of Christ. And so if that's the case, I think that just adds weight to Paul's argument here that we have to honor and respect our distinctiveness as men and women because of what we represent as men and women, uh, Christ and his church. Now, the way that the Corinthians were called to do that was through uh, men having short hair and not wearing head coverings and women uh, wearing head coverings when the church gathered together for worship. And so the obvious question is, is it supposed to be the same way for us today? Like, 
men who are wearing hats this morning, uh, are, you, are you currently in sin right now? Uh, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Uh, look, like, uh, women, if you're, if you're not wearing a head covering, are, are like all of you right now in sin? Uh, is, if, if you're a man and you've got long hair, are you currently, like right now, a disgrace? Uh, is 1 Corinthians 11 condemning man buns? The, the very pertinent questions of the day, right? Well, no, it's not. Uh, this, this is a cultural principle that the Corinthians were called to live out that does not apply to us in the same way today. And, and look, we know that. We know that it's cultural, and it doesn't apply to us in the same way today, not because we've got some kind of uh, special documents outside of the Bible from first century Corinth that tell us what Corinthian society was like, but because of the rest of the Bible. In the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, there was this thing called a Nazarite vow where a man who wanted to devote himself to God for a season uh, would take this Nazarite vow. And what this Nazarite vow entailed was that you wouldn't drink wine, you wouldn't touch anything that was dead, and you wouldn't cut your hair. You would let your hair grow out long. And so as a man, it was holy under the Nazarite vow for you to have long hair. And in fact, it, it seems like in the book of Acts, there are a couple times when Paul takes a Nazarite vow and so he would have had long hair at times. And so Paul can't be saying that long hair on a, man, on a man is at all times, in all places, disgraceful and shameful, uh, or he would be contradicting other parts of the Bible and potentially even contradicting himself. And so instead, when Paul is talking about nature teaching us, he's talking about culture, that, that culture, uh, that your culture should be able to teach you the distinctiveness between what uh, looks like a man and what looks like uh, a woman in this. And so for the Corinthians, it seemed like in their culture, long hair on a man was a way to communicate femininity, that you wanted to be seen and you wanted to present yourself as a woman, which is obviously not the case for us today. And so we don't follow the same kind of cultural application of the principle but look, we are still called to follow the principle, which is that we are meant to honor God's design for our genders and the distinctiveness of how God made us as male and female. And so, man, men should look and act and dress like men, and women should look and act and dress like women according to the cultural standards of our day, what nature, what culture teaches us. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about dumb false gender stereotypes like, well, men shouldn't cry because that's feminine, or women who like sports or lift weights too much aren't feminine, or men shouldn't wear pink, or uh, women are nurturers, they don't lead, so men should do that. Like, that stuff is dumb. Paul is instead talking about deliberately rejecting God's design and trying to present as something you're not. And so, for example, if I were to come up here to preach this morning in a pink shirt, I imagine most of you probably would not think twice about it. But if I was to come up here to preach in a pink dress and high heels, like I, I'm clearly trying to communicate to you that I want you to see me as a woman, right? Look, no plans to do that for the record, and uh, I'm really sorry if I put that image in your head, uh, but like that's what Paul is talking about. It would still be clear in our culture that what I would be trying to do is communicate, I want you to see me as a woman, and that's what Paul is saying we shouldn't be doing. Because look, Paul's 
highlighting the truth of Genesis 1 and 2, that when God created us, he didn't create us as kind of amorphous blobs. He created us as two distinct genders, male and female, man and woman, and that that creation of us as two distinct genders is good. In fact, it's very good. And so for you to dishonor and disrespect and disregard the way God created you as a man to try to present yourself as a woman and as a woman to try to present yourself as a man is to say that God got it wrong, that he made a mistake, that he doesn't really know what he's doing when he created us. And so we've got to honor God's design for our genders. Let me give you just a few ways that we might do that. One, Like, you should celebrate and honor the way God has designed you as a man or a woman. Like, honor the fact that that if you're a man, God wanted you to be a man. If you're a woman, God wanted you to be a woman. He created you that way. He didn't make a mistake, and it's very good. Like, it's good that God made you a woman. It's good that God made you a man. If you have kids, you need to teach your kids this and celebrate the goodness of God's design. Tell them, it's good that God made you a girl. It's good that God made you a boy. He made you a boy because he wanted you to be. He made you a girl because he wanted you to be. That's a really good thing. He loved you and he cared about you enough to do that. You want to teach and honor and celebrate God's design with your children because I can promise you, whether you homeschool them, private school them, or public school them, they are being taught the opposite of God's design. Because two, I'm sure you're aware of how quickly transgender ideology is spreading in our culture. Like, it's not going away. It's not going to quit. And so we can't just stick our head in the sand. Um, We've got to talk about it. Now, I think if we're going to bear a faithful witness in our day, then we've got to be able to make a distinction between transgender ideology and people who identify as transgender. Look, transgender ideology is demonic, and it keeps people in bondage. But people who identify as transgender are people who are made in the image of God and are worthy of love and dignity and respect. We don't treat them as projects or issues. We treat them as people, people to be loved. Because look, in a broken and fallen world, there are going to be people who experience gender dysmorphia, who feel like God, the, the body God gave them, the gender that God created them with it is wrong, that God made a mistake, that who are not going to feel at home in their own body. And, and transgender ideology and the sexual revolution is going to tell them that they should act on their feelings and transition because that's the way to happiness and fulfillment. And listen, it's a lie. And the sexual revolution is not going to be able to keep its promises to them. And so we have to be a safe place as a church. We have to be a space for people who are coming out of a transgender lifestyle to be able to fight against their sin and learn what it means to follow Jesus as they increasingly learn to believe that their feelings about themselves are not telling the truth about who they are. Jesus is telling the truth about who they are, and so they're going to follow him. We've got to be a place where people who identify as transgender can be loved and hear the gospel and the call to follow Jesus without being judged right when they walk into the door. And so we love people as people, not as issues or projects, because every person you meet is somebody who's made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and honor and respect, no matter what choices they've made. Now, part of love in this is is being able to stand against and reject transgender ideology. 
As God's people, we have to be able to say no to it. We have to be able to stand up and say that the emperor has no clothes and that denying biological realities is going to do harm to a ton of people, to both men and women, and now increasingly uh, it's going to do harm to children when we deny clear biological realities like this. Like, even when it means we're going to be looked at as hateful and bigoted, even with the continually growing pressure to be affirming, we have to be able to just stand up and clearly say that men can't be women and women can't be men. I was reading a story, I think it was from a few years ago, uh, about a woman who was, at the time, uh, a president of an NAACP chapter in Washington State, a woman named Rachel Dolezal, uh, who identified as black. Um, but eventually it was found out that, that she was not at all African-American, uh, she was white. And so when it was found out that she serving as president of this NAACP chapter was white, uh, she of course taught, caught a ton of flack for this, but she, she did some interviews after this, and in these interviews, she would continually talk about, hey, like, I didn't do anything wrong, because I don't identify as white, I identify as black. I don't feel white. Nothing about being white describes who I am. Now, our culture's rightly able to look at something like that and say, like, that's ridiculous. It really doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you identify, because you're not black, you're white. But, but for some reason, we're not able to make that realization with gender. But listen, we as God's people really don't have that option. We as God's people have to be different. The reason why is because we are different. Look, transgenderism is just one outworking of our culture's fundamental belief, which is that you are your own, that you don't belong to anybody else. And so you've got to go out and create identity and meaning and purpose for yourself. And that's the only way you're going to find happiness. Transgenderism is just one way that plays out today. It's one way to create an identity for yourself. But the fundamental truth of Christianity is 1 Corinthians 6.20, that you are not your own because you've been bought with a price that you don't belong to yourself. You don't have to go out and make an identity for yourself. You can just receive the one that God gives you because you belong to him. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to God twice over because he created you and he saved you. Look, God thought so highly of the way that he created us that he actually became one of us. He took on our humanity flesh and soul, body and soul, and he came and lived the perfect human life and then went and laid that human life down on the cross in our place for us and then rose from the dead, body and soul as a human being so that we could rise from the dead, body and soul as human beings and so that we would no longer have to belong to ourselves, we could belong to Jesus. And listen, because we now belong to Jesus twice over, we want to honor Jesus in body and soul. We want to honor our commitment to our spouses because Jesus is committed to us. We want to honor and pursue the participation of women in the gathering because God has made us interdependent on one another. And we want to honor God's design for our genders because God made our bodies and God redeemed our bodies. And any God who would love us enough to take on a body and die for us is a God whose design we can trust. So let me pray that we would. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. God, even when it's confusing, even when it's difficult, I thank you that you have spoken to us and you haven't left us in the dark.
And I know many of the, the truths from this passage are uh, difficult and weighty and just uncomfortable in, in the culture we find ourselves in. And so would you help us? Would, would you help us to have this sort of non-anxious presence who can just bear witness to the truth of, of your design for us? Would you help us to showcase something different in the way we're honored and way we honor and way that we're committed to our spouses? And would you help us to serve together as men and women interdependent on each other to fulfill your mission and what you've called us to as a church? God, please do that in us and through us. I pray that you would in your name. Amen.